0: Good morning, and please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Was I supposed to wait for somebody to read the scripture? Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 and somebody else is gonna come up and read the scripture right now. You've probably never had an introduction like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Thank you. You may remember nothing else, but you'll remember that guy is really anxious to preach. Um, When I looked up and I saw the verse in Korean, I thought I messed up. And uh, so uh, I, I'm so glad to be here and to be with you. Um, I want to take just a minute at the beginning just to sort of love on y'all a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you all get around and go different places much. The singing here is phenomenal. And I, I recognized it on Friday night. I thought this is a great singing place and this is a great singing church. And I hope to come back and be with you sometime just to sing with you, Uh, not for me to lead, but just to sit here and sort of absorb all of what is going on right here. You're a a delightful people, and you're a a hospitable and a warm group. And as as we all sort of emerge from our COVID uh, cave, and we see what in life is going to be like afterward and all, I'm so encouraged by the Buford Church and who you are and what you're doing and ministries like this one that's represented by the bags that are up here on the, the, the platform, and I'm just, I just commend you. This is just a good place, and I hope you are thankful to God for what you have here. I've loved getting to know uh, Kyle Sarah And they've just uh, been great hosts. And Kyle's done a great job of communicating and preparing and uh, taking care of me. And last night, uh, the entire ministry staff took me out. And just sitting at a table with your ministry staff left me feeling really, really good. Uh, I get the sense they like each other and that they work well with each other. And that is a, a marvelous thing. And I hope that you, as a congregation... Uh, very much appreciate that and appreciate what you have here. I sense that you are a people who are anchored in the scriptures and I'm so thankful that you have an appetite for that and a desire for that. And I'm thankful to be here for this weekend as we begin the new year a couple of months late um, and we finally got to, to sort of kick off the year, but I love your theme and the idea of more and the God who is more and this morning in this hour, want to deal with the God who deserves more. This text that was read just a moment ago from Romans chapter 12 sets up this day. And that is the Apostle Paul saying, I appeal to you, therefore brothers. The God who deserves more is, is wrapped up in that single word, therefore, here in Romans chapter 12. What he's saying is, that what we've been talking about for 11 chapters up to this point, all that has been described about God's eternal plan and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, all that has been described about what God has done now prepares us for what we're about to say. And so in Romans chapter 12, verse one, Paul turns the corner. And he says, now, therefore, based upon all that went before, I want to say something. I appeal to you, in Greek is parakolo. Now, maybe the most significant thing for you to know about that today, it's something that the Apostle Paul would often use as he would say, now, this is what it's about. Or this is the heart of what I've been trying to get around to. And if you were to travel to Greece today, parakolo is how you say please. Whatever you're asking for, if you want to order in a restaurant, you ask for something parakolo. Well, in, in, the, in the New Testament, when he says, I appeal to you, it's parakolo. It is please. It is I exhort you. It is this is what it's about. It is okay. Turn off your phone, look at my eyes. This is what I want to make sure you don't miss. And that is paracolo. Therefore, based on all that's gone before, brothers by the mercies of God, I urge you, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This morning as we look at the God who deserves more, reminds us that all of this begins with what God has done. And that's one of the, the, the key ideas that we've been sharing all this weekend. It begins with God and begins with what God does. And it is anchored in what God has done before anything. There is a, there's something in the National Archives that someday I hope to, to go and see if it's ever out and on exhibit again. But it's a, it's a pardon from Abraham Lincoln. From back during the Civil War, there was a man by the name of Roswell McIntyre who fought in the Union Army. And Roswell McIntyre deserted. Armies look very, very dimly on desertion, especially in time of war, because it can get other people killed. And so he was captured and he was sentenced to be executed. That's just the way it is and it just wasn't gonna go any other way But Roswell McIntyre appealed his conviction and he went up the ranks and eventually he wrote a letter to President Abraham Lincoln, landed on his desk. And in the letter, Roswell McIntyre said, I am without excuse and I deserve to die. But if you will pardon me, I will play the man. Well, that letter and the pardon he received from from Abraham Lincoln, that letter with the pardon written on it by Abraham Lincoln is in the National Archives today. And there's a little note that goes with it. And it says, taken from the body of Roswell McIntyre at the Battle of Five Forks River. It was the last cavalry battle of the Civil War. The man had said, I deserve to die. I mean, I've I've got no claim to innocence whatsoever. But if you will pardon me, I will play the man. That's the same dynamic we're talking about in a text like this right here. All of us, as we stand before God, we deserve to die. But we've been forgiven. And we've been told to play the man. Play the woman. You stand up stand tall and and be faithful and so what we are called to do as Christians is is not something where we're we're out trying to prove ourselves so that God might like us but God has already loved us and based on that we then respond that is the therefore. so I appeal to you please brothers therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. One of of my favorite places where we see this this message that's all around us, if we just have eyes to, to open up and see it, is in the songs for the Lord's Supper. One of my favorite places in our hymnal is the songs about the Lord's Supper. And in so many of those songs, the last stanza is this text. It is the, now therefore, I appeal to you, live worthy of the calling that you've received. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Several stanzas about what Jesus did on the cross and the sacrifice that is there. And then the last stanza, these are just, I love these. But drops of grief. Can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Lead me to Calvary. Last stanza. May I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for thee. Even thy cup of grief to share. Thou hast done all for me. Once again, in response to what Jesus has done, the sacrifice that God made on the cross, that we are called upon to live a life that is worthy. Nailed to the cross, there was one who was willing to die in my stead, that a soul so unworthy might live. Last stanza, I will cling to my Savior and never depart. I will joyfully journey each day with a song on my lips and a song in my heart that my sins have been taken away. The song, The Old Rugged Cross. Last stanza. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true. Its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then He'll call me someday to my home far away where His glory forever I'll share. Maybe my favorite of all of these is when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Last stanza, were the whole realm of nature mine, if I owned the world, even that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And then the one that we sang today, I don't have a slide for it because it wasn't in my list, but it's perfect for this. And I was was sitting down there writing it down. Why did my savior come to earth? Last stanza. So what's our response? We've just reflected on the cross of Christ. So what's our response? Till Jesus comes, I'll sing his praise and then to glory go, and reign with him through endless days because he loved me so. I beseech you, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, based on what God has done, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So we come to the text where we talk, the, Paul sets things up for, okay, now what are we talking about? We've been talking about God for these 11 chapters, And now it's time to talk about how you and I are supposed to live. So what are the specifics of this? We had a a president at Harding, Dr. Gaines, who was president for 22 years. And then he was chancellor for 26 years after that. The man lived to be 97 years old. And he was just an incredible ambassador for the university and for the church wherever he went. Uh, I could I could spend all the rest of our time today telling you about this man. He passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, just a very beloved person. Dr. Gaines was a numbers guy. And if, if, he had, if he were standing here today, when this is all over with, he could tell you how many pews there are in this building. I mean, he just notices things like that. He could tell you how many steps there were in all of the different buildings on campus as you go up steps and all of that he could tell you how many bricks there were in the Benson Auditorium. I mean, the man loved numbers and he noticed everything. And I remember hearing him on a number of occasions standing before the church and reading the entire chapter of Romans chapter 12. And he, he would always say, it only takes, I'm not a numbers guy. And so I don't remember how many seconds it takes to read that chapter, but it's not many. But he would always say, it only takes you know, 34 seconds to read this chapter, but it takes a lifetime to master. And that's the, that's the response that's called for, for us, is what we find in Romans chapter 12. Now, with the idea of being conformed, being transformed, not being conformed, he says in verse 2, do not be Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The first word, as we talk about what God deserves, in this summary statement and all. So, I want you to do not be conformed. What in the world does that mean? Best way I have found through the years to describe that to people is, I think it's what we could call arm's length Christianity. And it's the idea that as we live in a world that's always changing, and, and we're trying to do the right thing and everything, it, one of the ways of approaching the Christian faith is that we are about an arm's length away from the world. So we, we aren't weird. I mean, we, we sort of fit in, and yet we don't fit in completely. But we're an arm's length better than the world because we, we are uh, a people who... Uh, we, don't, we, we are not as vulgar in our talking as the world. We don't dress as immodestly as the world. We, uh, we entertain ourselves, well, with a lot of what the world does, but an arm's length better than the worst of the world. And so we are an arm's length away from the world. The problem with that approach to the Christian faith, which is all too common, is that the world is always moving and so what happens if what happens if the world moves in that direction there's a gap first of all and i feel a little little weird and 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 a little bit out of disconnected from the world and so sort of to make things a little more comfortable i walk back i walk over here and i i sort of situate myself about an arm's length away from the world again and i feel comfortable and i still My language is an arm's length better than the world. My modesty is an arm's length better than the world. The way I entertain myself is an arm's length better than the world. My my morality is an arm's length better than the world. Time goes on and the world moves again. And the world goes over there, and because of how uncomfortable we get with being too weird or too out of sorts with the world, I get over here and I find my place once again an arm's length away from the world. And it happens again and again. And when you get to the age where you have hair as white as mine is, you've seen a whole lot of change in the world. And you realize that where I am today on some of these things not like the world. Our language is one arm's length better. It's our modesty is, is one arm's length better. Our entertainment one arm's length better. Our honesty is one arm's length better. How angry we are. Well, we're one arm's length better. But what we realize over time, if we could see it from God's perspective, is we've moved a long way, haven't we? And today I am way removed from where the world itself was not all that long ago. Now, if I'm not careful as a Christian, if we're not careful as a church, then the world changes and we kind of move right along with it. Always an arm's length better, but only an arm's length better. Is that what we're called to be? Because over time, over time we realize that's the way to shift in a big way. There's, there's a passage in the Old Testament where the, in Deuteronomy, where Israel's about to go into the promised land and they are told, now you don't do all these things that are mentioned and all the, the pagan things of the people of the land. And, and at the time that it was, that was given, I'm sure the people sort of scratched their heads and thought, why would you think we would ever do that? And yet, if you start there in... Deuteronomy 18, and you read the passage, and then you read the rest of the Old Testament, it's like Deuteronomy 18 is sort of a, an outline for the rest of the story. Because they did this arm's length faith, and one day they wake up and there's no faith whatsoever. Do not be conformed to this world, but you instead are to be transformed. So what does that mean? And how do we, how do we become transformed? How do we, how do we go from where we are to where we want, we want to be like Christ? I don't know if it's, I don't know if Kyle's used it recently or not, but one of the stories in my growing up that we heard uh, a good bit about, I don't hear it much these days, and college students have never heard of this. But it's Nathaniel Hawthorne's story about the great stone face. It's based on a, a, something that's in the mountain. Actually, today, the face of that thing has fallen off. But at one point, there was the man in the mountain. It was on their license plates. And the story of Nathaniel Hawthorne was that, that the people who were the first settlers in, a va- in this valley, when they came in, the native tribes already had a story that there was the face in the mountain that looked like a human face And that someday, somebody from that valley was going to come back. They were going to go out in the world and make good, and they were going to come back. And they were going to kind of sort of almost like be a Messiah-type character. Somebody that that was just better than everybody else and was going to be a great leader. And so years went by. The story is told of a little fellow named Ernest, who grows up there with his family and, and in the valley, and so every day of his life, he was able to look up and see the face in the mountain, the great stone face. And he always wondered, and the people would talk in the village always about, I, I wonder who it might be or when it's going to happen. And as the story goes on, there are, there are people who grew up in the valley who went off and who came back very famous. And one of them was, Old blood and thunder. He was a, an army general. And he comes back and they have a big parade and they think this is the great stone face. And Ernest is there at the parade and he's so excited and thinks that this might be it. And he's so disappointed that this man obviously has nothing of the nobility of that face. And then time goes on and there's a, there's a guy named old Stony Fizz and he's a, he's a politician. And he becomes something like the president. And, and he's, he's famous, and he's from there, and so he's coming back. This has to be what we've been looking for. This is the great stone face. Well, there's a great parade. Uh, this, man, this man obviously has a, a cold and a hard heart. And Ernest once again goes back home disappointed. He grows into manhood. And as years go by, word comes back of someone who grew up in the valley who is great who's a great poet. And so he hears he's coming and he's excited about it, but he he can't quite get as excited as he did all those other times. The poet comes and they go out in the woods and he stands up on this big rock that's kind of a a makeshift podium or, or, or pulpit. And he, in the presence of the great stone face, he reads his poetry and Ernest loved it. And it was good stuff, but he wasn't the great stone face. And so the sun's going down that day, and they're walking back home disappointed once again. And the light hits him just exactly right, and someone says, they see Ernest, and they see that face in the mountain, and they say, behold, behold, Ernest has become the great stone face. And the whole message of Hawthorne's story is simply this. You and I become like that which we adore. We become like that which we adore. We look at it long enough. We gaze at it long enough. We reflect on it long enough. And we become like that which we adore. And Ernest, growing up in the valley, had spent his whole life fixed on that. And he had come to be like the great stone face. You and I are called to be a people who are fixed on something else. You and I are to lay aside every encumbrance and we are to look to Jesus. That's to be the thing that's the, the focus of, of our affections and of our adoration and what we look at and what we think about and what we're absorbed by. And that is the cross of Christ. And so Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the world, as one writer said, one translator said, don't let the world push you into its mold. But instead, you be transformed. You be changed. You be changed like that which you adore. And make sure that what we adore is the cross of Christ and who He is. and and his character and all that is about him so that we're we're not becoming like Georgia. We're not becoming like the United States. We're becoming like Jesus Christ. And that's what's knocking the rough edges off of us. And that's what's shaping us. So the God who deserves more deserves, calls for, appeals to, says please to us about don't be conformed to the world, but you be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the reflecting on all that God is, all that Christ has done. I'm going to get to the slide I want to be at, right there we go. Romans chapters one through 11 then become the foundation It becomes the therefore. It becomes what God has done. And now based on that foundation of what God has done, Romans 1 through 11, you find these things in Romans chapter 12. And very quickly, just running through these and seeing what it is. How how do you summarize what what, what we are to be in response to God's grace to us? This God who has done all of this for us deserves far more than what we can give. But these are the things that he says, this is how I want you to respond to my love and my grace. Verses three through eight. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment the one who exhorts in his exhortation and the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal and the one who, acts, who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Don't compare yourself is what he's saying. Don't think of yourself as I'm nothing because I'm not like them. Paul goes much fuller, more fully into this in 1 Corinthians 12. But also when we we compare ourselves, we might think that I'm better than they are. At the end of the day though, we're gonna know that there's somebody better at everything than we are. And so it's 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 a cause for haughtiness, and it's a cause for inferiority. And instead he says, listen, God gave us gifts. Use the gifts that God gave you, and quit comparing yourself. He says, let love be genuine. In verse nine, hold fast, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. I think we could spend the rest of our lives in that one verse. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 11, don't be slothful, don't be lazy in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. And serve the Lord. Verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. We get then down to those who persecute us in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Who? Oh. This just, as the old expression is, at this point, the preacher quit preaching and started meddling. At this point, it hits a little too close to home. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I don't know of a better better context for that in all of the world than what we have right here in the church. We, We sometimes view the announcements, I think, as, as maybe being an intrusion into the sacred hour. I don't know that there's anything more important than the announcements at the very beginning, especially when we talk about people who have experienced great loss, or we celebrate people who have had something wonderful happen in their lives today. It is a, it's something that where we as a church are doing exactly what Paul's talking about here. We are rejoicing with those who rejoice. We're weeping with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. If there's one verse that our culture needs today, it's probably this one right here. And it's like, don't be, don't be haughty and live in harmony. Be, be nice people and treat people well and think the best of folks, and try to lift people up rather than finding a zinger to put people down. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, love verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Sometimes it's not possible, and sometimes... I mean, the Proverbs would say that a gentle answer turns away wrath, and that is often true, and it's the policy we ought to pursue. But you know, sometimes a gentle answer will get you punched in the nose, and it's, not, it's something beyond our control. And at that point, well, that's just another matter. But as much as it depends on us, live at peace with all people. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, and by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What a marvelous, marvelous statement. When I was teaching the book of Acts to college sophomores, I had, uh, had them write journal entries. I had 10 different journal prompts and so in the course of the semester, we would come through a story in, in the book of Acts and there would be some issue, some very live human issue that was raised in that and I would ask them to, to write me a page on reflecting on some question as it related to that. Now, one of the most fascinating ones for me was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and it's a dramatic conversion and when he is those three days blind and he's three days in the dark, uh, we talked a good bit about how for, for Paul, this wasn't just three days. This was three days in which his whole world turned upside down. And when he asked, you know, Saul Saul, when he's asked, you know, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you, Lord? The next thing he heard was the last thing he expected to hear. When he hears, who are you, Lord? And he hears, I am Jesus. And he's thinking, "Uh uh-oh, because he's messed up. And in his mind, Jesus wasn't there. Jesus was down there. And in his mind, his brothers were the people who were with him. And all of a sudden, he finds out they're a part of the opposition of God. And so for three days in the dark, he is having to sort through. Before Ananias comes through to him, he is having to sort through. Up is now down. And good is now bad. And friends are now enemies. And the enemies that I was going to persecute are now my brothers. And the whole world, I can't imagine how scrambled his brain was in all of that. Well, as we studied that in the book of Acts, I asked the students to write me a a reflection. And I said, if you are a Christian, what changed when you became a Christian? Now, a lot of people in my class had, had, not the majority, but a lot of people had grown up going to Sunday school and in the church and in Christian homes and all. And so for them, it was a really good reflection to think about, okay, what did happen when I was baptized? There were some people who had a Saul of Tarsus kind of a story to tell. But on the prompt it said, if you're you're a Christian, what changed when you became a Christian? If you're not a Christian, what would have to change if you became a Christian? We had a number of Chinese students at Harding at at that particular time and uh, had a number of them in my class. And they had, almost all grown up in a context where Christianity was viewed as being a very ignorant way of looking at life. So most of them had grown up in atheistic homes, most of them had been surrounded by atheism their whole life and they were astonished when there would be somebody who was a doctor somebody actually teaching a class. I was so moved and I was so convicted by what my non-Christian Chinese students wrote. If you became a Christian, what would have to change? And almost without exception, they would say, there will have to be a great change in my life if I become a Christian. I will have to forgive. And I thought, those of us who grew up surrounded by the faith need to hear what they see, what they see in the scriptures and what they see in life. That the biggest change that I'm going to have to make if I become a follower of Jesus is I'm going to not be able to hold on to grudges anymore. And I'm going to have to find ways to forgive. And I'm going to have to be able to leave vengeance to the hands of God. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul had told the Romans all those years ago. Part of being a child of God, part of walking in the steps of Jesus is that we as a people are going to have to find ways to forgive. This morning, the message in some ways is simple, and short, like Dr. Gayna said, and in some ways we will spend the rest of our lives living it out. Our God, Created us, sent his son to die for us, while we were his enemies. We have forgiveness. We are, we are of all people just so incredibly blessed. Like Roswell McIntyre, there's something that is the response to this. There is the answer to the pleas, the answer to the I appeal. If you will pardon me, I will play the man. For you and me, O Lord, because you have died for me, and because I've been able to participate with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection by being baptized into Christ, Lord, I will rise to walk in newness of life, and I will listen and not be conformed to the world, but I will be transformed by the renewing of my mind and the renewing of my life. This morning, we have such good news to share. Jesus died for us. We've celebrated it as we we gathered around the Lord's table today. Jesus died for us. And because of that, he deserves my life, my soul, my all. This morning, What changed when you became a Christian? If you're not a Christian, what would change if you became a Christian? May we turn our lives over to God. May we place all that we are into His hands. And may we spend the rest of our days being transformed into the image of His Son. This morning, if you're ready to repent of your sins, confess Jesus as Lord and be baptized into Christ, or if you have some need, some burden, some some heartbreaking concern you need to bring before this family. We are here to encourage one another as we live in harmony with one another, as we rejoice with those who rejoice with one another, and we weep with those who weep with one another. May we respond to the God who deserves everything that we can offer as together we stand and sing.
1: So For that charge, Brother McClarty. Uh, if you remember, we have a family.